Welcome to Safa Security Chat Chat, episode 148 for the 21st of May, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and this week my guest is Sean Richmond from our Sydney office. Sean's a senior technical consultant in Sydney with us. I've had the joy of being at our Asia Partner Conference here in Hanoi, Vietnam, and Sean was here this week, and I thought it'd be nice to have a, a different voice and opinion on the Chat Chat. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Chet. Glad to be here. So we've been kind of going through the stories. I mean, you've been traveling. You were at Auscert last week, and I know uh, you did a, a, a demonstration based on credit card security. So that's one of the topics I wanted to chat about this week. But first, I think the big news that seems to be even on mainstream television, on, on CNN here in my hotel room, I saw a story about this Black Shades mass arrest. So, you know, Black Shades is a, a what we, I guess in the business, we call a rat, a remote access Trojan. Maybe you can explain kind of like, what is this Black Shades thing? I mean, there, there there's a bunch of arrests around it. We can talk a little bit about what the details are, but what what's Black Shades? Well, as far as I can see from the FBI, it's another remote access Trojan. And in fact, they are calling it a rat in the mainstream media. So that's quite a change. And it allows remote access to computing resources. It allows access to cameras, collection of passwords, collection of any data. It's a standard rat. It's cheap. It's $40 to buy, apparently, from malware sites and um, has become somewhat widespread. But as far as I can tell, it's a standard rat. Yeah, well, and I guess not everyone's familiar with the fact that these things have been commoditized to this point. That's certainly what this thing looks like when we're hearing the news from the FBI. Like, these guys weren't exactly stealthy in how they were operating or selling this thing. It was quite well known to people going looking for it that that it was malware and it was cheap, which is also, you know, for secret malware, for things that aren't widely distributed that are designed to be really stealthy and all that, you don't typically see those things showing up for $40 in marketplaces, right? right? And apparently it's customizable, so you can change it as you wish, which makes it friendly, but it is completely commoditized. Yeah, it's, I guess it's a, a modern version of things like Zeus that a lot of people have heard. I mean, it, Zeus was sold as a crimeware kit. You could buy it. You could customize it. It wasn't hard for AV vendors to detect it typically because, well, it was available on the open market. Tons of people were buying it, and all that really changed was little bits and pieces of its configuration. So it sounds a very similar type of thing. I guess what was interesting to me was that you know they've arrested so many people, and so many people were involved in this. I know they, they, the FBI was quoting over 90 people, I guess, were arrested. and 300, sir. Searches have been conducted. They've issued over 100 search warrants. And it's a quite large cross-border, cross-national operation, which has been really interesting to see. Part of that, they seized 1,900 domains, which is a great thing because it means they can start taking over the command and control. So the Trojan's still out there, still on people's machines. And if they don't seize the domains, then somebody can just walk in and take over the already existing botnet. I think that's a, a really important thing that law enforcement has become competent at doing is taking over that domain space. I agree. I mean, it's hard sometimes to figure out what we can actually do because these arrests, I mean, it's not like we're not going to see more remote access Trojans just because maybe the people behind this went to jail or some of the people that bought it went to jail. And I guess my advice to people out there who think they're perhaps amateur malware analysts is at least don't buy the malware from criminals if you don't want to get swept up in these things. But um, be careful, folks. I mean, like just because something's available for $40 doesn't mean it's a good idea to buy it, download it, play with it. Uh, when you're associating with known criminal actors uh, to a degree, you may be committing a crime yourself. 
Now, you know, talking about the chip and pin story, you know, we've been doing a lot of credit card research even before the Target breach, but obviously the public's been much more interested in the research we've done on credit card stealing malware uh, since that story happened. And there's another story from the University of Cambridge in, in the UK about some more chip and pin, I guess, vulnerabilities, you might call them. And, and everybody's proposing that, hey, chip and pin's the answer to this problem to a degree because obviously the stripe isn't working out so well is chip and pin dead like what's what's the deal here is this a fatal flaw as far as i can see there's a a pretty theoretical attack against the nonces used as part of the authentication process so you can do a pre-play attack and you can tamper with the terminal or tamper with the random number generation or the communications with the card so that you can tell what it's going to do for an authentication value and then play that into a terminal so you can actually be that card. It's a flaw, which is hard to execute, I would I would say. But then more improvement in this area is never unwelcome. I'd still say chip and pin is, even if this was way easier to do, still yards ahead of chip and signature and absolutely leagues ahead of magstripe and sign. Yeah, I think a lot of people's concerns are with the liability provisions in their country and that a lot of countries have rules. I know in Canada, it's actually technically still the rule, which is if it's a chip and pin transaction, the liability or the burden of proving the fraud is on the consumer as opposed to the bank or the merchant. And uh, in my research, one of the things I always advise people is if they have a tap to pay credit card, uh, Visa PayWave or MasterCard's uh, equivalent of it, use it because it actually shifts the liability back to the merchant away from the consumer. So it's a bit of an advantage for the consumer to do. The bank is always looking to do a liability shift away from them, and it's the one opportunity as a consumer that you can play the liability shift game and shift it back. But that's, I think, you know, the worry here is if somebody is able to conduct these attacks that consumers might be on the hook trying to argue with their institutions about these fraud charges. I looked at you know the, the details you're discussing as well, and I guess bad random number generation seems to be a recurring theme, unfortunately. We keep hearing about people implementing their own crypto in some magical chat instant messaging protocol or off the record or this, that, or the other thing, and, and in, in the end, it comes to tears. Apple recently had a flaw in their random number generation. Random numbers, very important. Make sure they're random. Uh, the research seems to show that certain terminals or devices are actually like using numbers in sequence, which is not very random. So that you know that's something that can be fixed, arguably in firmware patches by the vendors of these devices that are that are not choosing random very well. I found some of the attack to be just a little impractical, right? I, I mean, altering the communications between the device and the end, you know, kind of brings back to me this this concept that. If you physically breach security, all bets end up being off. I don't want to uh, discount uh, Professor Anderson's research. I think, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, the Cambridge website on chip and pin flaws in general is fantastic research they've been doing over they the years. Doing the research too, which is awesome because it keeps on bringing more things to light and we can make better generations of more secured, avoid the flaws. Surprisingly, crypto was mentioned last, last week at OzCert by researcher Peter Gutman who was saying a lot of people don't even bother attacking the crypto because crypto, to break it, is hard. To bypass it, and this is a sort of bypass attack, is what happens. So the more ways we can see things could be fixed to avoid bypass, the better everything gets. But I still think chip and pin is something that we want to do. And in Australia, we're moving across the board to chip and pin in August. And in fact, it's being advertised on television to say, throw away the pen, 
you do not need to sign anything anymore. Chip and pin is required. I think that's a great step. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, perhaps we'll do a future techno on payment card security because there's so many different layers of depth here that it's hard to cover in a chat chat. But I feel the same. I'm, I'm happy to use my chip and pin card. And I don't like the fact that there's these flaws. And, and ultimately, like all things in our business, being compatible with the old bad way of doing things comes back to bite us sometimes. So hopefully, as the standards are updated to accommodate fixing these things, we need to start throwing out the old things and not allowing them to be used anymore. Other news uh, updates. You know, Apple had a big update this week. OS 10, 10.9.3. Largely not that important security-wise in that it was a roll-up that included the security update 2014-002, a Safari update to version 7.0.3, an iTunes update to 11.2.0. But all of those fixes were previously available from a security perspective. You know, there were some bug fixes and other things in there that that um, are helpful to Apple users, but not really anything concerning on the security side until iTunes. Unfortunately, it looks like Apple actually has uh, made a mistake in iTunes 11.2.0 and messed up the file permissions in the users folder, making some things writable for everyone that shouldn't have been. Uh, for more details on that, uh, Paul Ducklin wrote an article on Naked Security you can take a look at that explains what the problem is and the fix, which of course is to update to iTunes 11.2.1, so be sure to do that. Like any other security update, why wouldn't you apply it? You know, the only concern I guess some folks may have back to 10.9.3 is the size of these things. If you're on cellular or something, we're traveling this week and sometimes connectivity can be difficult. And, you know, the 10.9.3 update was half a gigabyte. And if you download the combo update where you don't have to be on the latest version, you could just jump to being current. It was almost a gigabyte. And, uh, you know, I, I realize data is pretty ubiquitous these days, but it can be challenging for some folks. So, yeah, it's where I've been traveling and in back streets of Vietnam. It's not so good. Makes sense. And last but not least, uh, I usually end the chat chat with a, a try to end in an upbeat. And I don't know if this is an upbeat or a downbeat. It's kind of a neutral. But the Electronic Frontier Foundation in the United States has been branching out a lot more internationally, and, and they're really focused on user privacy and data security and these types of things. But today, it's more about the privacy, and they, they released their, their report, uh, their, their Who Has Your Back report, which is kind of assessing the major internet providers, cloud providers, service providers, etc., and how they kind of stand policy-wise on protecting your data. Like, do they uh, fight government requests in court if they feel they're unjust when they ask for data? Do they clearly outline in their privacy policy the details and guidelines of how they deal with law enforcement or how many government requests for data they get? And, you know, this has been going on for quite some time, even before the Snowden allegations. And one of the interesting things the EFF pointed out when they released the report was nearly every company actually improved in their rating from the last report so that's that's a very positive thing but to just list off quickly the losers and the winners and maybe we can dive into what we think of this a little bit the worst three that were listed by the eff were snapchat recently um, getting in trouble with the federal trade commission in the u.s as well so hopefully that'll improve at&t the big american telephone company and of course amazon who's not been very friendly to many things when it comes to the privacy world and then the ones that kind of got top ratings and this is where it gets interesting for me to dis, you know, distinguish a little bit yeah. between privacy and security. Top rated were Apple, Dropbox, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Twitter, and Yahoo. 
you know, this is a privacy report, right? This is kind of like, is the government snooping in your business and what do these companies well, do to, to, to inform you or protect you from undue intrusion? Well, it must be noted, the, the actual title is Protecting Your Data from Government Requests. It's not taking security of your data and making certain that other people can't access it by link errors or insufficient privacy settings or anything like that. It's the response to government requests. So Facebook has five stars across the board. So they do all of these things, but it doesn't mean that if you've shared stuff on Facebook that it's invulnerable and it's secured and somebody can't get it. Likewise, for Dropbox, if you share a link and let people have access to the data, then they have access to the data. But if law enforcement comes knocking, they're more likely to follow the standard procedures, require a warrant, have a published policy, transparency reports are there. Yeah, it's not securing your data, it's protecting your data. Right. And, and I think that that brings up the interesting point to me that we also need to differentiate in this modern age between law enforcement and spying. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're very different things, right? Law enforcement wants to put people in jail, which means they have to follow the rules. They have to get a warrant. They have to convince a judge that the, the evidence they've collected of your crime is a valid thing that you can be convicted of in a court of law under all the rules. Spying, on the other hand, is to protect us against uh, apparently terrorism and foreign threats and all this other stuff. But that is done surreptitiously. So if the data is not actually protected correctly, spies are much more likely to take it that way. They don't need to follow the rules because they don't have to convince a judge, apparently. Yeah. Um, so we got to you know, be careful with that. And, and hackers and spies operate the same way. So my thing is I don't really care how you feel about GCHQ or the NSA or, you know, for me in Canada, CSIS. Whether I like the spying or not, that's a political issue for me to vote on when I go to the polls because those people that are doing those things are doing them at the command of our politicians. But when I'm worried about protecting my data, if I try to protect it from hackers, I'm also protecting it from government spies, right? Generally. They're doing the same thing. They're, they're using Trojans to steal stuff when it's not encrypted. They're accessing my data when it's poorly secured on Dropbox and Amazon, the same way criminals are doing it. So if I protect myself against the criminals that are truly causing damage to my personal privacy and my business, I'm also giving myself a pretty good layer of safety against government intrusions. So I think, to me, this says, great, they've got policies and openness, and I like companies that do that. But on the other side, I still need to protect my data before it goes to any of these companies because, one, they will comply and they should comply with legal requests. But, two, this doesn't mean they actually protect the data. If you're putting things out where they can be found by anyone and you don't want them to be readable, then there are tools you can use to, to make certain that happens before it gets to the cloud because you can't take it back. The Internet is a giant copying machine. Everything you send out is copied in a few places because that's the way it works. If you want things to stay super private, go with the services that look after your privacy and and encrypt all the stuff that you don't want people to see first. I couldn't have said it better, and I, I happen to I'm, a, I'm aware there are some companies that have some solutions that might help with this problem. Perhaps if you're listening to the chat chat, you might have some ideas of where you could look. And on that note, I'll conclude Software Security Chat Chat 148. Uh, as always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. For all of our podcasts, you can get that on iTunes or via RSS or over at soundcloud.com slash sophos security. And until next time, stay secure.